This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas believes the future of Texas, our communities, economy, and citizenry depends on how well we prepare all students. Meet your regional advocacy director, sign up for our newsletter, and get involved at raiseyourhandtexas.org advocacy. And Texas Engineering Executive Education. Unlock the mystery of crypto and its effects on energy systems. Learn Bitcoin, blockchain, NFTs, and more with UT Austin Texas Engineering Executive Education. Now registering at executive.engr.utexas.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 2nd, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune, coming to you the Friday before Labor Day weekend, what we generally consider kind of the beginning of the home stretch for the 2022 elections. And so today we are going to talk about those elections uh, with you know two of the Texas Tribune's uh, top political reporters, Patrick Spitek. Hey, Patrick. Hey there. And James Barragon. Hey, James. Hey there. Thanks to both of you all for joining. So, you know, it has been somewhat of a whiplash-inducing year so far in Texas politics, or really maybe even more so in national politics. You know, we entered the year under the assumption that Democrats were in for a, a pretty tough go for it for at 2022. You know, you had an unpopular president, inflation, uh, you know, at the turn of the year, we had the Om Omicron variant really kind of raging through the country, um, you know, worsening people's COVID fatigue. But, but, but since then, you know, around this summer and the spring, things have started to shift. We, you know, of course, inflation maybe slowed a little. Biden's approval rating has ticked up, although it remains, uh, I would say, still quite low for a midterm election. And you know, but perhaps the most important has been the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, which was, you know, as, as everyone knows, a kind of political tidal wave, um, not just policy-wise, but also in terms of, of how it has affected these races nationwide. And we have seen nationally, you know, in, in some special elections, Democrats faring better than expected particularly and most recently in Alaska with, with the defeat of Sarah Palin. And I think what to many of us was a big shock. And, you know, we're also talking about a real possibility of the Democrats holding on to the Senate, which might have seemed much less likely six months ago. The first thing I want to talk about is whether this is playing out the same way in Texas. You know, the, the big race for governor is the one we, we really want to talk about here. And uh, I pulled up the Texas Politics Project's poll tracker uh, uh, before this meeting uh, to, to kind of look and see what the polls have said since then. And really, the, what I pulled from that was there haven't really been that many polls since we, we saw Dobbs, that Dobbs case, you know, a, uh, um, a, a couple statewide showing, showing uh, Abbott up, you know, between five and seven percent, but but nothing that I could at least look at and say, you know, there is some big shift going on. I mean, Patrick, what's your reading of this? Has, is that race at the top of the ballot tightening at all? 
Well, I think what happens after Labor Day is going to be really decisive in this race. Um, you know, Greg Abbott's campaign has been on TV since mid-August. Uh, Beto O'Rourke's campaign is set to probably go on TV in the days after uh, Labor Day. And so, um, you know, these are uh, two people who are very well known at this point in Texas politics. A lot of Texans... Um, you know, already have their minds made up about what do they think about these two people. And we're going to see a TV uh, campaign ad war, uh, you know, kick off after Labor Day uh, to really uh, maybe not even try to change minds, but go after the few remaining Texans uh, who don't have an opinion about these two guys. And so, um, you know, it's, it's going to be, I think, uh, pretty interesting to see what the TV advertising is. You know, I expect Abbott uh, to focus uh, a lot on the border, the economy, uh, Biden, and, and related contrasts with the work on those issues, where I expect, whereas I expect our work to focus on, um, you know, those two issues that have, have really given Democrats an unexpected boost of momentum this summer, which are abortion rights and, and gun control. And obviously, those are two issues that are um, tethered to two big newsmaking events that we had in Texas this spring, whether it's the overturning of Roe v. Wade or the uh, Uvalde school shooting. So, um, you know, I think that's where the race is at uh, heading into Labor Day weekend. Patrick, uh, you know, the, the old saying, all politics is local, um, that saying, I think, has been kind of flat out wrong for, you know, quite a long time here. And it feels like politics, of course, becoming more and more national. But as you have kind of observed in your stories in the Tribune, Abbott has in large part um, really kind of led his advertising with more kind of biographical ads, right? Um, how national do you think he is aiming to make this election uh, in terms of making kind of those, you know, Biden's popularity and, and, and kind of the issues at the forefront of, of national politics, the, the issues that, that, that their top voters and, and candidates are talking about in this election? Yeah, I mean, I think that Abbott is, is definitely trying to ride the national trends that are working in favor of Republicans, whether that's on the economy, uh, the border and public safety, or just Joe Biden's unpopularity overall, as you pointed out, his, you know, his uh, approval rating has ticked up, but it's, it's still pretty bad for a midterm. Um, and, you know, everything that I've seen, you know, shows that it's also still pretty bad inside Texas, that approval rating. And so if you're Abbott, you want to talk about those more nationalized issues as, as much as possible. Um, as far as him, you know, running these, uh, you know, positive biographical ads, I think it's, uh, you know, certainly an interesting strategy. As I pointed out, a lot of Texas voters, um, you know, already have an opinion of Greg Abbott. Um, you know, so, you know, I think that these ads, uh, maybe geared at new voters. I mean, we know that Texas is adding, um, you know, every election cycle adds so many new voters, and that's obviously an important uh, voting block. And so this, these ads could at least partly, you know, be geared toward introducing Abbott to those new voters, um, maybe, you know, voters who are coming from other states who don't necessarily know a lot about Greg Abbott. And so it could be a, start, a smart strategy um, in that way. Um, but, you know, obviously the, the, the effort there is to kind of soften Abbott up on TV for in front of this wide audience before he takes what are probably going to be some really um, nasty hits on TV from the award campaign. I mean, you have some very um, emotional, sensitive issues that are going to be used against Abbott on TV by the award campaign, whether it's, you know, I mean, I would not be shocked at all if you saw a parent of a Uvalde victim, you know, going, you know, 
facing the camera saying, blaming uh, Greg Abbott for the, for the death of their child or, or children, um, or you know, a, a woman who had a, a really sensitive, um, medically complex pregnancy talking about how the abortion restrictions in Texas have, have made a, a very tough situation even worse for her. So I think you know, we're gonna see some very, uh, you know, very emotional, uh, profound attack ads against Abbott. And so I think his campaign anticipates that. And, you know, you see these two, at least two plus weeks of, of very positive advertising, trying to humanize him uh, ahead of those attacks. Yeah, that's interesting. James, on the other hand, we have O'Rourke who, when he ran for Senate in 2018, people observed that he didn't seem to make his campaign that much about Ted Cruz. Um, an interesting strategy, given how polarizing and emotional Ted Cruz tends to make people across the political spectrum. You know, it's hard to say that was a bad strategy. He obviously didn't win, but he did come within three points, which is the closest a Democrat has come statewide in a very long time now. But it is very clear that O'Rourke is taking a different strategy this time around and is really going after Abbott hard in every way possible. What, what, how's that playing out? Well, yeah, I mean, I think he's learned uh, maybe that if he wants to sort of try and get over the hump, he's gonna have to do that. And he's gonna have to talk about his opponent and really create a contrast, um, not so much of the uh, attack, although it is quite a bit of attack, but also the contrast of like what he could do differently. What's his different vision for Texas? Um, and he has been making that uh, pitch on the campaign trail as uh, Patrick has seen following him around. You know, he's got a very different vision on uh, gun safety, for example. He's, he's for some gun safety uh, positions, uh, whereas the governor has already said, you know, raising the age uh, for assault rifles, that he thinks that's unconstitutional. Obviously, Beto O'Rourke has a very different opinion of that. He's got different opinions on um, immigration and border security. He's got different immigrations on um, school funding. So he, he really is taking it to Abbott. And I think importantly, what he's doing this time around that's, that's, that's different, and I think that that's good for a political campaign to do, is to attack the opponent, but then also in the attack, also pivot to, here's what I would do differently. And I think that's certainly what's happening. But you know, to go to your other point um, about Abbott and and these sort of biographical things that are uh, biographical ads that he's putting out, mm -hmm. I think that it's a battle for the independents. It's a battle for the non-voters. You know, um, and the Democrats always say, you know, Texas is not a Republican state; it's a non-voting state. Um, well, I think we're going to find out really if 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 that if if those non-voters or those independents will swing to Democrats too. And I'm not even saying that it that you know the Democrats could win some of these races right now. I don't think the polling shows that, but I think it could make it very more closely. And that is sort of in itself a victory because it stuns people into saying like, well, maybe we need to do need to do things differently, like what, what happened in 2018. But I think um that is sort of where the battle is to your point like with those independents and non-voters and i think it still sort of remains to be seen obviously patrick had that great story today about uh rural voters and better going after them um and i think that's really sort of not just rural voters but other voters who are typically not engaged like that's really where the battle is because to patrick's point if you're a republican or a democrat you kind of already have strong feelings about bo both of these folks but it does seem like both of them are sort of going after those atypical voters. 
We should know too when we're talking about these these biographical ads. Not only are they you know highly positive, highly biographical, but they're they're being voiced and, and the stories are being told through the women in Abbott's life. Whether it's uh, his wife who narrates the first ad that we saw from Abbott's campaign, uh, and the second ad he talks about his family, including his his late mother-in-law, who was prominent in previous. Uh, television ads for his previous campaigns. And so, you know, at a time when uh, Republicans are looking uh, at a potential backlash among at least some female voters over these, uh, you know, abortion restrictions, uh, this seems to be an effort to counteract that. Yeah, it's like softening the softening the image. And I think it is it's a, a wise thing to do because there are, as uh, Matthew was pointing out, those issues um, that are very intense. They are very tough, like abortion and like immigration, where Abbott has been pretty vocal about where he is on that. So it's a good idea to sort of soften his image with voters who may not be as politically engaged. And, uh, you know, those voters can say, oh, this guy seems like a nice guy. You know, his, his, his grand or his, uh, you know, his uh, mother-in-law and his wife seem to really love him. He seems like a really nice guy. Also, for to, to Patrick's point, like the new people that are moving to Texas are moving here for a reason, right? A lot of them probably like the way Texas is going. And if they say, like, if they make the connection of like, oh, this is the guy who's been running the, the state for the last eight years, and it's not been so bad, and that's why I moved here, maybe I should continue to vote for this guy. Um, it, you know, it presents a soft uh, image of him uh, that to a not politi super politically engaged voter is like, hmm, yeah, I, I might keep voting for that. Yeah, you know, I always um, think about how there was some exit polling in 2018 that suggested that Beto O'Rourke actually won the vote among native Texans and and, uh, and Ted Cruz won among uh, voters who had traveled, who had moved to Texas and were not born here. And, you know, when you think about it a little bit beyond kind of what the popular narrative is, you it makes a little bit more sense because people who, who move who can who are able to move state move states are tend to be more financially secure a little bit more you know what you would consider the more traditional uh, republican demographic but um you know going against kind of the long-term narrative another thing kind of going against the long-term narrative of the state that i just want to kind of remark on um as i was thinking about what you were talking about patrick is how the two of the issues that Abbott's, I mean, O'Rourke seems to think are the most kind of vulnerable for Abbott are abortion, you know, something that has, I think, abortion restrictions and abortion rights uh, associated with a conservative state long kind of viewed as a, as, a, as a tough issue for Democrats and guns, you know, Patrick, you mentioned the, the possibility of, of running family members of Uvalde victims and commercials. And of course, one of the big issues that folks have been going after Abbott for since Uvalde is raising the age of um, you know, assault weapons or um, semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21. And again, a situation where, you know, actually, if you look at the polling, it maybe favors uh, O'Rourke a little bit more, but goes against kind of the long-term narrative of Texas there. I mean, we did see Abbott kind of weigh in on that. Can you tell us what his answer was this week on that issue? Well, um, yes. I mean, Abbott was asked again this week about the proposal to raise the age to buy an uh, assault rifle from 18 to 21. And he again, resisted it this time. He said he believes due to recent court decisions, it's unconstitutional. Um, 
obviously everyone was, was skeptical of that answer. I don't think, uh, you know, Texas leaders have ever been deterred by, you know, <laughs> pursuing the law just because it's been challenging or the idea has been challenging courts before. So, you know, had to take that answer with a heavy dose of salt. But to the, to the broader point that you're making, um, you know, public opinion is definitely on the Democrat side when it comes to these issues of guns and abortion. We, we've seen enough data at this point. We know that big majorities of Texans want stricter gun laws. We, you know, there's there's disagreement on how far to go on having those stricter gun laws, but majorities want stricter laws than what we currently have now when it comes to guns. When it comes to uh, abortion, we know that most Texans do not support what is now the law of the land in Texas, having this, this trigger law that bans almost all kinds of abortions in Texas. And so O'Rourke is, you know, on the right side of those uh, issues. Um, it's just, you know, I think it's going to be a real battle at the end here to see if, you know, he can keep those issues top of mind for voters and make voters um, side with him on those issues, even if they may be more inclined to support Abbott on issues of the economy, of the border, of public safety. Um, you know, and that, that was something that we saw in polling over the summer was even as we had these, these major news events on guns and on abortion, where clearly Abbott was out of step with the, the voting public, we still saw voters say the most urgent you know, issue uh, that they thought was in their daily lives was the economy, sometimes the border, public safety. And so it's always kind of a matter of issue salience. And I think if you're Abbott, um, you want to spend the fall making sure that the economy, public safety, the border, Biden's unpopularity in general are, are top of mind for voters so that even if that voter disagrees with you on guns and abortion, they're thinking more prominently about these other issues where they agree with you. And of course, as we discussed last week, Abbott has been very successful lately in keeping the border in the news through his, his migrant busing program, um, which uh, of course was expanded to Chicago this week. I wanna go back to something James brought up, which is Patrick, your, your great story this, uh, that ran today on rural voters. We have kind of gone through a familiar news cycle around Beto O'Rourke, or maybe it's even less a news cycle and more a kind of social media cycle where O'Rourke kind of makes his swing through rural Texas, there are a lot of pictures being shared on social media about these big crowds and small towns that don't usually vote for O'Rourke. And they, you know, those are often shared by O'Rourke supporters as, a, as an indication of, you know, headway and a big momentum that he's taking. You have, you know, I think properly raised some reason for skepticism around that narrative about whether those big crowds are actually a sign that he's making gains. What, what did you kind of find when you dug into the numbers there? Yeah, well, with the help of our uh, data team, you know, we looked at counties with, I think, a population of less than 50,000. We considered those rural counties and looked at how the, you know, top of the ticket Democrat, Republican have performed there. And, you know, we found what I think people have already concluded, which is that despite all Beto works work in rural Texas in 2018, he, he really didn't improve that significantly on Democratic, uh, the Democratic margins there. Again, just to, I guess, frame this conversation a little more broadly, Democrats have never claimed they need to win rural Texas, but they've claimed that they need to do a little better there, at least get some of these margins closer. And so, you know, Beto O'Rourke got 24% of the vote um, in these counties 
in uh, 2018. You know, two years earlier, Hillary Clinton got 23%. Um, you know, uh, two years before that, Wendy Davis, I think, got just similar to 23%. So, you know, maybe you can make the case that he improved a percentage point over those two Democratic candidates that came before him. But that's not remotely close to what Democrats need to be doing to be winning statewide uh, when, when it comes to their performance in rural Texas. And so he just really has his work cut out for him. Um, and, you know, it is a really, as we described it in the, in the story, you know, it's a really stubborn Republican firewall. And I think sometimes these crowds that he gets um, can be a little bit of a, a mirage. Um, it makes for, you know, great, um, you know, campaigns want good media attention. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't say this dismissively. I think it is an asset for the campaign in that it, it, it really puts these events in a, in a favorable light. I mean, every campaign would rather have large and enthusiastic crowds versus small and unenthusiastic crowds. So I don't say that as a, a knock on the award campaign, yeah. um, but in terms of the correlation between that and how rural Texas actually votes in November, I think sometimes, uh, you know, you have to separate the signal from the noise. Yeah, you know, actually, there was a, a comment from uh, Dave Carney, uh, Abbott's kind of chief strategist in that story that really struck me because he did kind of knock that. I mean, he, he basically argued there's no correlation between the crowds and the outcome in November. Um, you know, and he noted that Trump got big crowds in 2020 and uh, Joe Biden, quote, was in his basement doing Zoom calls with 12 people. Right. Like, you know, uh, a, a humorous quote just in and of itself. It kind of reminded me a little bit about the the, the discourse around yard signs in 2018, you know, when everyone <laughs> kept observing. We're seeing so many uh, um, uh, Beto O'Rourke yard signs and, and folks in, in Ted Cruz land were just kind of pulling out their hair being like, this means nothing, yard signs mean nothing. I mean, is that is that really the Abbott's campaign stance that like you don't I mean he's definitely not out there as much as O'Rourke kind of holding these rallies right. they kind of taking the position that you don't really need to do things that this is not how you win elections in Texas these days I think that's probably their perspective I mean let's be very clear I mean so far the Abbott campaign's approach to this race has been largely just TV media spending we have not seen Abbott um, campaigning in person um, really all that much um, you know, since the primary, more or less. Now, obviously, he's, there's been a few events, as we talked about, that have consumed him from the official side. Um, but he is not out regularly campaigning in person. You know, Labor Day is traditionally a turning point for campaigns. So we'll see if that changes after Labor Day. Um, but but so far, the Abbott campaign seems to, you know, be pretty, I don't want to say complacent, but, but comfortable with waging this as largely a media campaign. I mean, they've been up statewide every, you know, most markets, if not all markets in the state since uh, mid-August, as we talked about with those very positive biographical TV ads. So, so far that, that seems to be the strategy that they think um, is a winning one for this race and that has them on, on the right track. But, uh, you know, yeah, needless to say, I mean, Abbott is not going out to these rural communities and camp and, and you, you know, even when he does go out on the campaign trail, he doesn't campaign in the way that a work does, um, you know, taking questions from the audience that, you know, really opening it up to a dialogue. So, um, you know, he's the incumbent. You would expect him to have a, a much more sheltered approach, I think. For sure, for sure. You know, another example of a sheltered approach, James, is around debates, right? We have, it seems like maybe likely one debate that has been agreed to, O'Rourke 
trying to get four more, uh, often in the town hall format, um, seems unlikely that Abbott's going to want to uh, put himself at risk like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one more thing that I'll say just off the question that you were asking, Patrick, is that uh, I, I think that one, I do think that it's true that like the crowds don't necessarily translate to votes. Um, there's a lot of organizing that needs to happen. There's a lot of get out the vote that needs to happen. But on the other hand, it does show some type of enthusiasm, right? And it might convince other people um, who aren't necessarily uh, in areas where democratic enthusiasm is high to, to think about it and say, huh, if people are you know, getting that excited about it, maybe I should come out. So some of these closet Democrats, some of these closet Republicans in certain areas, you know, kind of changing sides. So it, it does serve towards that. And I think um, you know, the Abbott campaign sort of uh, being dismissive of that is sort of par for the course. I think if you're if you're Abbott's campaign, as as Patrick was pointing out, you kind of just want to keep this at arm's length. You know, you're running a comfortable race. You don't have to overexert yourself. You don't have to like put yourself in situations to make mistakes. And you know that that's fine. But O'Rourke is doing his thing over here. We're very comfortable where we're at. And that's the thing with the debates too, right? Um, if it was a much closer race, uh, maybe we'd get more than one debate. But Abbott wants to um, have the least amount of exposure. Uh, for a possible error uh, that he can this uh, cycle. And so the, the, the one debate that's been agreed to, I think makes logical sense. And uh, it doesn't really matter how, how many debates Beto O'Rourke's team wants to have. Um, it's, if, it's, if it gets closer, then they might want to do that. But if it doesn't, then I, I see it being the only one. Um, and it's not surprising. What's the path here for O'Rourke? Like, what does a successful campaign between now and election day look like where it would feel like he really has a legitimate real chance, you, you know, where, he, where he, he emerges as the winner in this campaign? Well, I think he does need to keep doing like, yeah, he has to, doing. go ahead, Dave. Yeah, go, go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, this is the hottest take, but I think he has to continue to try to center these race on these issues that overwhelmingly favor him. Guns, abortion, um, the power grid, you know, which has faded a little bit, but still from polling is a deep vulnerability for Republicans. And he needs to find effective ways to play defense or to, you know, avoid altogether issues related to Biden, um, you know, oil and gas jobs, uh, the border, um, you know, all these things he said during the 2020 campaign uh, that now look, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, uh, left, you know, left compared to the, um, or that the Abbott campaign is going to try to portray as, as radical compared to where the Texas electorate is at. And so, you know, for work, I think that's going to be the big, um, the big question. And it's the total inverse for Abbott is, you know, how do I get through the next uh, 60 days or whatever, 60, 70 days or whatever, keeping the focus on the economy, the border, public safety, and, and not having to play defense on um, all these, you know, abortion restrictions I'm responsible for signing into law, for the inaction on, on guns uh, following Uvalde. I mean, it's, again, I don't, I don't think that's like the hottest take, but I think that's really just a task for both of them. 
it is also just a thing of like in politics, you got to be good and you also got to get lucky sometimes. Right. And so the things that I, I think also he needs to do is to just like stiff arm Joe Biden, <laughs> keep him as far away. <laughs> Say like, I disagree with him on, you know, uh, immigration. I think we need to do more on immigration. Uh, we got to be more active on issues like abortion, things like that. I think he just needs to give a big old stiff arm to Joe Biden, who is not very popular right now. But that doesn't, you know, and, and you mentioned this in the beginning, Matthew, it seemed to be shaping up to be a bad year for Democrats. And now it's sort of, hmm, maybe uh, we'll see if they can survive some of these like big challenges, because that unpopularity seems to be sort of holding with Biden and not necessarily falling all the way down the ticket. So a big stiff arm to Joe Biden is what he needs to do. And then he just needs, and a big stiff arm also to 2020 Beto O'Rourke, all the things he said, <laughs> as, as Patrick pointed out, all the things he said during the presidential run that were like super lefty for Texas, that's not necessarily what you wanna be talking about right now. And really the progress, if you're worried about the progressive voters, like they're not gonna care because their alternative is Abbott, and when it's a choice between a sort of a, a more centrist uh, Beto O'Rourke and Abbott, I think the choice is very clear for them, although sometimes it isn't. Um, and then I think the other thing is, I was talking about, you got to get lucky, right? You know, Republicans want to talk about immigration, Republicans want to talk about the economy, they want to talk about inflation, raising rising gas prices, rising uh, food prices. You got to get lucky. Maybe immigration sort of slows down although unlikely, but the more likely thing is maybe the economy gets better. Maybe gas prices keep going down. Maybe um, yeah, inflation in general keeps going down, the consumer price index. Uh, and, and it starts looking like the economy, maybe they are gonna be able to do the soft landing. And you don't even really need to talk about it. You just need to say it's getting better and you know, uh, we're doing an all right job and things aren't gonna go all to hell. Um, so it is just a little bit of luck, um, but you know, it's 60 days, seven days, whatever Patrick said. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's unclear. So <laughs> you do so, sort of need a stroke of luck. And right now it seems like the, the luck really has sort of stuck with Abbott. There hasn't been anything catastrophic. There's been no maximum grid failure, uh, because if that were to happen, obviously that'd be bad. All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Chad Cantella has been providing excellent lobbying, political strategy, and business development support to clients for over 20 years. Learn more at teamcantella.com. And Texas Women's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Learn more at twu.edu/health. Okay, so James, we talked about Beto O'Rourke and Greg Abbott. That has obviously gained a lot of the attention. There are a bunch of other statewide races that I think can accurately be described as a little bit sleepy so far heading up to the, um, uh, the Labor Day weekend. Obviously less money involved in those cases, in, in those races, which can, can affect that. But I mean, what's, what's going on here? What are, why aren't we seeing much from the other candidates challenging Republican statewide, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the problem is the same problem that the Democrats have had um, in past races is that they've, they've just been losing for a generation. And so it's hard to build up that momentum. Um, you get one star that sort of rises up and that's been Beto O'Rourke. Um, and the rest of the ticket sort of lives or dies by how, how that star does. Um, but, you know, they do have candidates running in important races, obviously, uh, from Lieutenant Governor Mike Collier, once again, challenging uh, Dan Patrick, um, who, who he came, I think, within five percentage points of in 2018. So that's an important race. Um, and then Rochelle Garza running for Attorney General 
against um, incumbent Ken Paxton, who's had all sorts of legal troubles, who had a very tough primary, um, even some dissatisfaction with him among Republicans. So I think those are the most interesting races. And then there's a bunch of like statewide races down from there. Um, but uh, to me, really, the, the more interesting one is the Rochelle Garza versus Ken Paxton for attorney general, just because uh, General Paxton is such a vulnerable candidate. And Rochelle Garza has been trying to sort of, you know, sneak into more and more. But, you know, I think the reality is probably she doesn't have as much money um, as you would want her to have to really make a go of it in the months prior to Labor Day. I think probably now we'll start seeing that change. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I'm, but, but I mean, I think that one's interesting. She's, she's a woman. She's a Latina. Um, she she. As an ACLU lawyer, she um, fought for immigrant rights and abortion rights. And so that's a stark contrast to Attorney General Paxton, um, who's fought on the other side of those issues. So I think that one just is like an interesting matchup. But I don't see anything, you know, that um, the candidates on the Democratic side have done that would be an overwhelming like, oh, this person is uh, has really made inroads with voters like sort of these non-voters, these atypical voters that we're talking about that Democrats need to win that Beto O'Rourke is going after. I'm not sure that they've really made inroads into those. Although, you know, Mike Collier has been uh, traveling uh, and, and doing some of the same things that Beto O'Rourke has with rural voters, um, with Latino voters, with uh, black voters. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, his campaign is focused on this time around. Um, so I don't know, uh, I guess I guess that's what I've got for, for those okay. races. Yeah. It's just a, for all these other Democratic statewide candidates, it, it really just comes down to a resource question. I mean, I think they have a, a very credible slate of other Democratic statewide candidates. James mentioned uh, the strength uh, of the kind of story and profile that Rochelle Garza brings to this race. Uh, Mike Collier, you know, has run twice statewide before, um, you know, which, you know, let's be clear. I mean, you know, sometimes people, you know, dismiss that or say that's a loser stepping up again and again. But if, if Democrats, you know, in Texas want to ever get back to power, they need to have people in their party who step up after losing and, and learn from losing and keep trying at it. Um, you know, Mike Collier- have some inbuilt name recognition, right? If you were like- Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mike Collier's one of those people, Better Work is one of those people. And so I think they actually have a pretty- credible and in some cases strong statewide slate, but it really just comes down to resources because in this, in a state like Texas, um, where the incumbents are so entrenched, where the media landscape is so pricey to advertise on, you got to have more and a half, you know, than your opponent, you know, double what your opponent. So it's really just a resource question for them as it has yeah. been in the past. And for Republicans, that's not really a problem. They've got uh, treasure, sure. they've got war chests ready to go. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has so much money. Attorney General Paxton has so much money. Um, and really, the other thing that they have in favor is that people keep moving here. I mean, the, the economy, things have been pretty good in Texas. I think a lot of uh, where Democrats are going to be changing people's mind is really on, on social issues. Um, and again, Texas has been traditionally a conservative state on social issues. So it's a little bit about that sort of changing mind frame. And, and that takes... You know, that takes several cycles, I think, to sort of figure out or a really great candidate. Um, and so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I don't know where we are in terms of the single line there. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit to being a little bit perplexed by the attorney general's race and how, you know, we have Ken Paxton 
who I think has got to be seen as the most potentially vulnerable or at least kind of damaged of the statewide candidates. I mean, this is somebody who, aside from being, um, you know, taking kind of very strong positions, some of which are very popular in the state, some of which are not, but it's someone who has is under criminal indictment, you know, felt criminal indictment has a, a, a criminal case pending. In addition to that, has been accused by some of his former top deputies, many of whom are extremely conservative and part of the conservative movement of, you know, of, of bribery. And I guess I don't really understand why there hasn't been a kind of rallying behind Rochelle Garza in a seat that's incredibly important, you know, um, you know, if, if you have a Democrat in the governor's uh, seat right now, you would still have, you know, Republican House and Republican Senate in the Texas legislature. If you have a Democrat in Ken Paxton's seat, a, a, a position that has been hugely influential over state politics and national politics, that would be a massive win for the Democrats, you know, Am I just missing the the big name Democrats, you know, trying to help her raise money or or or, or raise her name ID? I mean, where is the kind of uh, you know support behind her to try to get her some momentum in this race? Yeah, I don't I don't think you're wrong about that. I think you know, Gromer Jeffers of the Dallas Morning News just wrote a great column about that as well, sort of saying like, hey, she's she's an interesting candidate. She could be a star, but in exactly what we were saying earlier, in this kind of state, you need you need financial resources and you also need people to help build up the candidate and it doesn't seem like Rochelle Garza is getting either of those things um, and so I think it's a valid question but you know like Patrick was saying you know Labor Day is traditionally the start of uh, the election cycle where we really kick off where we really get going and so maybe you know maybe we will see some of that coming out in the next two months here as we head into election day it would be the right time to do it as as the election is fresh on people's minds as they're sort of getting toward that like final sprint. Um, but I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think that those things have been missing, not only from Rochelle Garza, but from the entire slate, but particularly in Rochelle Garza, because of what you're saying, it's such a vulnerable Republican candidate in Ken Paxton. And we saw that because in the primary, three other very credible Republicans ran against him. Mm -hmm. um, and for whatever reason, Rochelle Garza hasn't really gotten that help. Um, you know, there, there are some people, I think the Democratic uh, Attorney General's Association has helped her out. I think there's been women uh, voter organizations that have helped her out, but no doubt, I think there needs to be, if they want her to be a credible candidate, there does have to be uh, a much bigger and more vocal uh, show of support for her that really has not, has not shown up to this moment. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's the same story as last cycle in the AG's race is, you know, national Democratic donors in some groups are just not putting their, their money where their mouth is. And, um, and Paxton has gotten even more vulnerable, as you pointed out. I mean, obviously, last cycle, it was just the securities fraud indictment, right? Um, he's incurred so, so many more personal and ethical, uh, you know, predicaments since then. Um, and I just don't think some of those folks who are in a position to really move the needle on this race financially are putting money where their mouth is. And, you know, you know, if, if Rochelle Garza were to get uh, a $2 million check or $1 million check tomorrow, that would make a world of difference compared to if Beto work got a one or $2 million yeah. check tomorrow, yeah. um, you know, if Beto O'Rourke loses in November, it's not going to be because he didn't get that additional $1 million check. You know, Paxton only has like three, I think, at least as of June, I think was maybe what, three 
three and a half million dollars cash on hand. If some people wanted to step up for her, if there was a will there, there is actually a way in this race. They just need to um, actually put the money where their mouth is. It, it, it wouldn't be that hard if you at least compared to the fundraising capacity or the fundraising interest we've seen in Beto work. If you applied that same interest to Rochelle Garza's race, you could probably move the needle in a really serious way. Yeah, there is also the thing of, you know, there is a star on the Democratic side that has those resources named Beto O'Rourke, and I don't know how much, you know, political camp, you've been on the road with him more than I have, Patrick, but I mean, is 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 there any push for like down ballot? Because that would seem to be the smart thing. That's certainly what Governor Abbott does, you know, in, during the big state house race or pushed by the Democrats in 2020, you know, Governor Abbott was out there as the leader of his political party saying, hey, we need a vote down ballot. I wonder if that's happening on the Democratic side, because obviously that would be a big boost because some people may not even know who Mike Collier or Rochelle Garza or Luke yeah. Warford running for railroad commission is. But if Beto O'Rourke says, hey, uh, let's let's make sure we vote down ballot. I think that certainly helps. But I don't know um, how much that is happening. That certainly would be a boost, I think, for those campaigns. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's probably going to be a growing discussion in the in the end here is, you know, how much the O'Rourke war chest is helping other statewide candidates and, and down ballot candidates. I mean, right. You know, he's been obviously an incredibly strong fundraiser. I think it's been at the expense of other Democratic candidates. I mean, you know, you know, there's always grumbling that he takes the oxygen out of the room from a fundraising perspective. So we'll have to see how his, you know, his campaign is going to help those other folks, you know, if at all yeah. financially. All right, quickly, Patrick, what uh, congressional races or legislative races have your attention the most right now? Yeah, look, I mean, I think what's interesting is uh, what's happening in South Texas uh, continues to fuel optimism for Republicans, even as you see a little bit of an environmental shift, maybe in other parts of the state due to issues like guns and abortion. There's still, a, from what I can tell, a good amount of optimism about those three congressional races in South Texas, especially um, the, the 15th congressional district, which is the, um, the one that is an open seat where Vicente Gonzalez uh, is currently an incumbent but is not running for re-election in. That's probably going to be the most competitive uh, one. And you continue to see Republican optimism that Myra Flores, um, you know, who won that special election in June, has a chance to hang on in her district in November, despite the fact it was redrawn to be more Democratic. Um, the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the top Republican super PAC involved in congressional races, announced recently, uh, I think it was last week, that they're committing to $3 million in TV ads in that district in November, which is probably the biggest uh, you know, signal of confidence we've seen in, in the fact that national Republicans still believe Myra Flores can, can win this thing in November. So, you know, I think there is still a good amount of Republican optimism down there. Um, you could also point to the, the open state Senate seat down there that Eddie Lucio is, is vacating. We've seen Republicans start to get more serious about that. Uh, Greg Abbott, the governor, endorsed the Republican nominee there, and then Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick did. So um, I think there's still a good amount of optimism down there, even if environmentally things have kind of trended away from uh, Republicans in other parts of the state. So those are some of the races that I'm, I'm watching. All right. Well, we will watch them as well as we head in, as I mentioned earlier, into the home stretch of the 2022 elections. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, James. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Texas Engineering Executive Education, Chad Cantella, and Texas Women's University. We'll talk to you all next week. 
Join us at the Texas Tribune Festival, September 22nd to the 24th in downtown Austin to hear from U.S. Rep. Liz Cheney in a talk on the state of democracy and the future of the Republican Party. See the full program and buy tickets at tribfest.org.